Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I want to welcome you to Encounter Church. Um, and just in line with what Jason said, if this is your first time, we especially want to welcome you. We hope you have. We really believe Sunday mornings can be the most hopeful and helpful part of your week, and so we hope that you find that in the next even 30 minutes, that there's practical teaching that helps to move you to a better place in life. Um, for me, I, I was in college. I was about uh, grad school specifically. I was about 21 years old. I was sitting across the table. Um, I was telling uh, a guy who'd become a mentor to me, really in, in the process of becoming a mentor, a father to me, um, about this exciting news in my life of getting engaged to this girl named Jenny. And uh, he and his wife were sitting across the table, and we were having this kind of celebration dinner. And Rick had become an instrumental part of my life. And, and as we were sitting there talking, uh, he kind of began to dominate the conversation with questions, because he was a really good question asker. And um, he's like, what's your favorite meal? And I'm like, well, the steak is really good. But I mean, if you had to like pin me down, I was like, chicken parmigiana is probably my favorite. And um, like really good bread, and really good salad. And when you put them all together with a little bit of cheesecake, it's like the world is perfect, you know? And, um, and so he, he looks to Jenny, he says, what's your favorite dessert? And um, she doesn't have the quality that I have of taste. And she said, key lime pie. And, um, <laughs> You know, we're not perfect, and we just kind of embrace our indifferences. And, um, and so we, um, he said, okay, great. And uh, he said, what a, well, tell me a little bit more. And he, so he started kind of asking questions, heard our story. And then at the end of the meal, he looked at me and said, hey, you know, we meet weekly. We meet regularly. Um, you really are like a son to me. And I know that financially for your family, um, what you're getting ready to step into in this kind of the wedding, the rehearsal dinner. I, I didn't really know all the traditions. I was kind of ignorant of that. Um, he said, you know, I know traditionally that rehearsal dinner, um, which is really a, what I learned to be a glorified way of all the family members that you never talk to show up to get a free meal. Um, that is essentially all it is, is free meal for them. Um, you're responsible. And I was like, oh, I am. Well, we could do like hamburgers and hot dogs from like Costco. I mean, I got that, man, I'm ready. And um, I can make a mad PB&J sandwich like you wouldn't even believe. I mean, like, I, I really, we got it. And he said, um, Teresa and I have talked, and we want to cover that for you. And I was like, oh, man, that, that's great. But PB&J is not that expensive. I mean, I can afford it. He's like, no, um, the, the restaurant you mentioned that had that chicken parmigiana specifically, um, they're a friend of mine. So I'm going to call them and have them prepare the meals for us. I was like, hold up. He said, and uh, we can get some really, really good key lime pie, and we'd like to host it at our house. And I said, are you, what? Um, in their house, they lived on uh, it was in this incredible, I don't even know how many thousands of square feet mansion um, at the one point of this lake where you could see kind of the sunrise and the sunset. It was just this incredible position. And this beautiful, stunning house, I and mean, he was one of the world's leading eye surgeons at the time. And he said, and, and by the way, I want to give you a gift, and I want to give you LASIK eye surgery. And um, which was a big deal because ever since I had been um, pretty much an elementary kid, I had worn glasses. And, uh, and so he said, I can do that. That's really easy for me. I'd like to give you that for free. And I remember that night, um, this, I mean, it, it could have been a Hallmark movie, um, except that it wouldn't have been cheesy. And, um, and it was just this stunning, the sun is setting, this house is beautiful. 
all of these people that I have never met, because some of them are family members I'd never seen before, and then some of the closest friends and family um, that we had are all gathered in this mansion with the sun setting, eating a meal from a restaurant that had literally shown up to deliver it and prepare it in his house. And I'm walking out to the car and, and just thinking, why in the world would he do this for me? And that was one of the most defining moments in my life. That relationship specifically was one of the most defining moments in my life because here was the reality. He didn't have to do any of it. I wasn't his son. I wasn't his favorite employee. He didn't have an obligation for me. He had only known me for a few years. And yet, he said, I want to do this for you. Uh, it's a privilege for me to do this for you. And that, that moment will forever be etched in my mind as this exceptional picture of what it looks like to step into someone's life and to create this redefining moment of how people can treat each other. Because he didn't have to. Nothing making him do it. And yet, he made a difference in my life. And in the midst of the series in Why in the World, we've talked about the difficult moments and difficult people. But the Why in the World isn't just about the difficult people and the difficult moments. It's also about people who make a difference and defining moments where you just take a step back and say, why in the world would someone do this for me? And maybe you've had someone like, maybe you had a school teacher, a coach, a friend, a mentor, a parent, who stepped into your life and through some of their actions created a why in the world moment for you. And I know as a young 20-something that while that moment was defining for me and while it was this incredible, like, powerful memory for me, the how-to wasn't as clear as what he did. I had the what, but I didn't know the how. Unfortunately for me, in the midst of being able to spend time with him, but even more importantly, of being able to process through the Bible, I realized that so much of what Rick was motivated by came out of the story that I want to process through with you this morning. You see, Jesus had a similar approach that he would not only give his followers great explanations, but he was also intentional about giving them experiences that would serve as defining moments for their life, moments that would redirect the course of not only their lives, but even our lives today, because we're in this room talking about a man who was God, who lived 2,000 years ago. And specifically, the story is the night that he's arrested in John chapter 13. He, he models something for us that I believe that isn't just a powerful story, but it's actually an example and an explanation for how we can become a person who can make a difference in the life of someone. If you have the Encounter Church app, um, I would go ahead and encourage you to fire it up or download it um, on sermon notes or the Bible. You'll actually see this passage already loaded. But uh, in the next just 20 minutes, we're going to work through and discover that any of us can begin to make a difference in the lives of others by following these two dynamics that, that play out in the 17 verses of John chapter 13. And I want to set the backdrop because um, John is a unique guy. Um, in this, kind of the history of the Christian church, John stands out. He was the youngest of all of Jesus' disciples. Most of them had kind of emerged through the kind of defining moments of their life. They were starting, they were young professionals. They were beginning their careers. Um, they were following kind of father's footsteps and 
family businesses, but John was the youngest of all of them. He was still pretty, like, form, like he's just still processing a lot of questions about life. And, and Jesus and John have a special relationship. Jesus kind of took John under his wing because he was the youngest. He was the runt of the group. And, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are the writers of the three books that we call the Gospels, but they were these letters, they were these eyewitness accounts, these research projects, and who Jesus was, written within decades of Jesus living, dying, and coming back to life. John is different in that John waits almost to the end of his life to write his story about his time with Jesus. And so because of that, John writes with an awareness of what had already been said about Jesus. He said, here's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about. And on the night that Jesus is arrested, Jesus establishes something that is um, really one of those defining kind of things of the Christian church. He establishes what we call the Eucharist, or maybe if you grew up in a tradition that calls it the Lord's Supper, but this idea of the, the, the bread and the wine and this, this communion idea happens this night at this very meal that John's about to talk about. But John does not talk about the meal. He doesn't discuss the bread and the wine. He, he actually pulls out a different aspect. And I think it's because John wanted people to realize when he thought about the life of Jesus and the experiences that he had had with Jesus, he said communion overshadowed some other significant moments that night that he was arrested. Because this is Jesus' last time with them. He knows it's about to be over. And so he's intentional about everything he says and everything he does. And John, for us, because of the impact it has on his life, records what happened that night with a vividness as if it was still playing out right in front of him decades later. So I'm going to kind of work through it, and then we'll process through some of the dynamics that you see. John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the evening meals being this idea of communion. Um, and, and the devil had already prompted Judas, one of Jesus' followers, to summon the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water in the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I'm just going to stop there. So John is trying to pull out this moment. He says, that night where everyone else wants to talk about communion, Jesus did this profound, profound act towards all of us. It, and John wants to kind of frame it. He says, just in case you miss what I'm about to say, he says, Jesus... Who, which is foundational to the Christian belief, this, this absurd idea. Right? This is one of the craziest things that Christians believe, that we believe. That God stepped into planet Earth, put on flesh, and was with us. And that he communicated and he, was, he demonstrated. Jesus wasn't a great teacher that gave us the best explanation about God. He was the best representation of God big difference. And John's like, look, even if you don't believe it, you need to understand that before I tell you what he does. Because he understands, look, everything in the next six hours is going to look like it's going to fall apart, but I know it's not. 
And so Jesus confidently slides away from the table. He gets down. He takes off his outer garment. And he begins to wash the feet of all the disciples gathered in that room. Here's why that's significant. Because the first century Roman Empire, while highly advanced for its time, especially in the realm of infrastructure for travel, I mean, they, they essentially created global travel at the time. There were roads that could take you to the farthest edges of the empire. But this, these roads were not 21st century roads. They weren't driven by cars. They were driven by donkeys. And where cars have one type of emission, donkeys have another. There wasn't a cleanup crew. There wasn't a, a, a kind of a service industry in place who came alongside of the donkey's emissions and cleaned them up. You just happened to step in them in the midst of everyday life. If you've ever been walking in a field or on a farm, you know how easy it is to be talking to someone and all of a sudden say, oh, poo, right? There it is. And in the midst of everyday life, that's what happened. And because at this time, when people ate, they didn't sit down at chairs, they would recline. And so they were reclining on their elbows, eating food off this little mat on the floor with their feet facing out, which meant that your feet was pretty close proximity to everything happening around you. And so the lowest servant, so if you were to kind of create a hierarchy of the servant and the slave system in this day, the servants who were in charge of taking care of the wealthier kind of individuals, they actually had a pecking order. The lowest of the servant, the unpaid intern of the servant, right? The, the person who's volunteering because they can't even get the internship, okay? That, that guy was in charge of washing feet. That was his responsibility, is the foot washing. And so a servant would look down on the servants who washed the feet because it was the most disgusting of all the jobs because it wasn't an easy job. You had to put some elbow grease into working out the beauty of the feet, right? And Jesus, sitting around the table with a group of guys who've watched him walk on water, who've watched him bring people back from the dead, who've watched him do supernatural, powerful miracles, slides away to begin to wash their feet. And in doing so, he completely uproots the way of thinking. You see, they lived in a day and an age very similar to ours where the, the view of success was about the race to the top. And Jesus says, you know what? I know that that's what you think, but let me give you an example that, that the significant are in the race to the bottom. That while su success is about seeing how tall you can climb and how high you can go so that you might look down on others, the significant goes down to the lowest and serves. That while in their day and in our day, life is about what you can get from others, he says, no, significance is about what you can do for others. And he lays out this picture, of this profound uprooting flip their whole world upside down, that even the most menial task can become meaningful when they're done to make a difference in someone else's life. That the smallest of things can become significant for the least of these that we tend to look down on. He changes the way they see the world. He changes their mental model. Qantas Flight 32 um, was taking off in the early 2000s 
It was under the control of Captain Richard Champion de Crespigny. He was an Australian man who was a little bit, looked a little bit like Crocodile Dundee. But he was an incredible pilot who was really diligent in thinking through all the different disaster scenarios. And on the van ride, every single time he was to captain a plane, he would be leading his other pilots through what-if scenarios. And he would say, what happens if this happens? And they would respond. And then and they would all go around the van on the way to the airport, rapid firing. They take off from the airport in Singapore, get about 7,500 feet up into the air on their climb, and they hear a loud explosion, followed by even a louder explosion, followed by the sound of hundreds, if not thousands, of pellets just down the hole. And all of a sudden, in the midst of those two explosions, in the midst of the, the rapid-fire shots, everything on that Airbus, all the systems start firing and alarming and, and indicating and blinking. And the 440 passengers, because of the emergency protocol, the camera that's on the tail of the plane is illuminating exactly what's happened on every one of the screens inside the plane. That the turbine and the blade, an oil fire had caused an explosion that ripped one of the blades off, that tore straight through the engine. In the midst of tearing straight through the engine, ripped holes, caused additional explosions, cut the fuel line, cut the hydraulic line, and created holes in the left wing that were so large that men could pass through them without touching the metal. And the plane starts to violently shake. The, the, the pilot and his crew are go immediately into disaster mode, and all the what-if scenarios that they talk through weren't fixing the problem. For every one thing that they would do, the system would alert them to another problem. In fact, 21 of the 22 critical systems needed for that plane were completely damaged, if not destroyed. They make a decision to turn around to go back to Singapore, which is really dangerous, because turning a plane that essentially has no controls meant that they were even in graver danger of losing control of the plane and crashing it. They're able to get the plane back centered, and as they're beginning to descend, they're losing control of everything. One of the co-pilots realizes there's enough hydraulic fuel to hit the brakes one time. It gets so overwhelming that the captain sits back because he realizes he can't even take in everything that's happening. And so he does something that researchers later would say would be one of the most defining moments for that flight. He forgets he's flying an Airbus, and he starts thinking about piloting a Cessna, one of the first planes he'd ever flew, one of those staple planes that almost any hobbyist or anyone who's ever gotten a pilot's license would become intimately aware with. And he pictures that this 440-seat Airbus is nothing more than a tiny Cessna. And while his systems are screaming at him, stall, 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 or speed, 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 he ignores all of it and just imagines he's flying a Cessna. He touches down. He's got 4,000 feet. The plane, if everything's done right, will, will be able to stop in about 3,072 feet. And he, he lands that Cessna in his mind. He hits the brakes at this perfect moment, and he's able to stop just a couple hundred feet short of the sand dunes. 
Researchers would later look back on that flight and said that that was the worst Airbus that had ever actually been successfully landed. Other pilots who would go through similar training have tried to recreate what he did that day on flight simulators, and none of them have ever been successful. Because what that captain did that day was demonstrate the power of a mental model. That the right mental model in the right circumstance can literally save lives. And Jesus says, I want to give you a new mental model for love and leadership. And it doesn't look like the from model that you see of the top-down approach. It's the for model that I'm modeling for you. Right? And Jesus even says that to his disciples in, in 12, where he says, look, I know when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? Because they'd never seen that before. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and teacher, have, and I have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, Jesus demonstrates a different mental model of what love and service looks like. And for us as individuals, maybe we, we, we don't live in a world where foot washing is the common experience. Right? If somebody tried to wash my feet, I'd probably kick them in the face just from laughing or being weirded out by it. But in their day, that was very normal. That's what the lowest servants did. For us, it, it may look like in our professional world of realizing that there are individuals and in interns or residencies or job shadowing programs who are exploring what could become of their life and are looking at you as someone who's way up here that they hope they could become. And what it looks like to, to be a person who is for, not from, is not just to merely demand the things that they're doing to get from them, but to say, hey, come sit in my office for 20 minutes. I want to share a little bit about my journey with you. I want to help you, because you seem to want to do this for the rest of your life, and, or you're, you seem to be really interested in what I do, and I want to help you. I don't get anything out of it. I just want to do this for you. Or it may be in relationships that you have a friend who's going through just a really overwhelming time. And you say, you know what, um, hey, don't worry about dinner the next couple of days. I, I know that you guys are in the midst of a lot right now and you're processing a heavy load. And could we just bring dinner for you? Again, it's very simple. It's very menial. But it can become meaningful if we approach it the way that Jesus did, this mental model of realizing that people can make a difference when they leverage their life for people, not try to leverage their lives to get something from them. It may be that even just in, maybe with your spouse or maybe with a roommate of, in the midst of their kind of stressful season, of picking up some of their chores, some of the things that they normally do around the house and say, hey, I did that for you because I know what you're going through right now. Or I know that work is being really demanding. If you're an accountant and you're going into tax season, Right? That there are pressures on you. And it may be just that you say, hey, I know this is a crazy season. Let me do some things for you. And that, that simple question, is there anything I can do for you, can make a difference in someone's life. Or maybe it's tutoring. 
Maybe it's coaching a sports team. But here's the thing. It's not about the action. It's about the attitude of saying, I want to do something for you, not just try to figure out how to get something from you. Jesus is interesting. He says, you're, you're blessed if you do this, right? He, this, which is a very kind of first century way of saying, that's a great idea. It'll change your life. And in the book Give and Take written by Adam Grant, who picks up on this idea of what does it mean to live a life as a giver, he points out that there's been studies that have revealed this, this phenomenon known as the 100-hour rule. In 1998, they did a study of Americans who were serving and what they noticed was that Americans who served 100 hours in the course of a year, which breaks down to roughly almost two hours a week, that they tended to, to be more likely to be alive in the year 2000 than those who didn't serve and volunteer. And not only did they have a greater chance of being alive, but they seemed to be more successful in life. They seemed to be more kind of satisfied with life. And overall, their general demeanor and happiness was at a higher level than those who weren't serving and volunteering. Now, Adam Grant or the researchers didn't discover this or invent this. They merely quantified what Jesus had already expressed sitting around that room that night, that there is something about living a life that's about giving, not about taking. And it's not just in individual lives. It's, it's the very model this is the very story where we pull out principles for how we do church. That we believe that a church should be known for what they do for, not what they take from. That's why every single week, there are dozens and dozens of people, just like you, down the hallway serving and loving and creating an environment where kids are, are being engaged and being exposed to some of the most quality, edifying, difference-making material in the life. They're, they're having deposited in their hearts and in their lives a reality of mental models of what they could become, of generosity, right? Of friendship. And what does it mean to live out the life that Jesus called his people to live? And those values are being instilled. Not by people who get paid to be down there, but people who get to be down there because they see what many of us would call a menial task or what some would even call like imprisonment right? They see as a privilege to serve and to invest in the next generation. And that's why on Sunday mornings, even if you don't set your alarm clock, your kids become an alarm clock. Because they're like, we want to be, we want to go to encounter. And it's not because of what happens in this room. It's because what Jesus has just demonstrated in John chapter 13 gets reflected every single week right down the hall. And that it doesn't just influence how we do family engagement. It, it's in all the subtle things we do. It's why when we were deciding, okay, how do we pick out a location for a building, that we step back and what for many on the outside would say um, was a very menial thing. We chose to rent a school building and to be portable and to bring boxes out of a trailer every week and to set it up and to then take it back down and put it back in a trailer instead of investing money and just having a building. But as a church, we said, no, we want to be, we believe the for, not the from, is the most significant approach. And said, so we realized that we could rent 
a building for seven hours a week and donate just in this year over $50,000 to the public school system. $50,000. Now, we're not occupying an empty building seven days a week. We occupy a building seven hours a week. But the school benefits from it because it's $50,000. We don't tell them how to spend the money. That's not our prerogative. Our prerogative is to serve and to be for, not to figure out what we can get from. And that guided our decision to occupy a building. And, and we would say, look, until we figure out how we can make a difference seven days a week the way that we can make a difference seven hours a week, then we're going to stay here. Or maybe it's even some of you are here because of a community event. You're like, I, I just... I never understood why you would do this. Next, next Saturday, 3,200 people from our community, 1,600 kids are going to show up and are going to have an incredible experience and are going to leave like, man, this was awesome with our egg drop. And there's nothing about that day where we're trying to get something from them. It's all about what we want to do for them. And why? It's because that's how Jesus modeled life, and that's what we believe we should do. Period. Whether it's in the subtle things like our coffee that tastes really good, but that coffee comes from a, a special ministry in Rwanda that's committed to trying to bring reconciliation. And so what happens is the coffee beans that are the source of what you drink every single week are oftentimes picked by someone who lost a loved one in the genocide who's working alongside of potentially the same person who killed their loved one. And that in the midst of them picking coffee, in the midst of this ministry's engagement with them, reconciliation and forgiveness is happening in a country that was torn apart in one of the greatest genocides in the last 10, 20 years that was largely ignored by most of the world. And yet, even our coffee says we're, we believe it's the for, not the from. And that, that guides us. And even April 10th, to give you a glimpse of the future, uh, we're going to be doing kind of a parenting series next month. And April 10th is going to be kind of a unique Sunday. We're not going to meet physically. We're going to send you a video link. There's going to be this, like, kind of thought, kind of similar to this, but shorter, a little bit more abbreviated, with some, some like, an action plan, action items. And here's the thought. We said, let's, in the midst of that series, instead of just talking about what it looks like to be a people for good, let's set aside and say, look, the hour that you were going to spend here, here's some things you can do in the community to make a difference. And then talk about it with friends or with family. And to foster this idea. Because we believe ultimately, while we love what we do on Sunday mornings, we believe the most significant person in the life of a child is you, their parent. That you will set the course of their life. And we want to come along and work for you and help you in that process. Because I'm a parent and I know I need help. Right? And that drives everything we do. That we want to be for, not about the from. And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, look, I've never seen a church like this. That doesn't make sense to me. And what I would say is you're discovering this idea of the mental model. And what you have, if I can be very blunt with you, is a mental model that doesn't fit the model that Jesus laid out. What we're doing is not a new model. What we're doing is a very old model. 
One reflected in John 13. Of motivated, of, that's rooted in the four, not the from. And then I think the encouraging thing about this is that no matter where you are in the spectrum, no matter what you believe, you can apply it. You can do it. You can begin to leverage the principles, hence Adam Grant's give and take. There's nothing religious about that book, but it is very much in line with the religious principle that Jesus was demonstrating. And yet, the supernatural dynamic of what Jesus did was the fact that Judas was in the room when he washed the feet. And Judas was a man who just moments after Jesus washes his feet will get up from the table, who will leave the room, and with the very clean feet that Jesus had washed, will walk straight to the people who he set up an ambush for Jesus with. Jesus literally paved the way with clean feet for Judas to walk out of the door and to set a trap. And that's the supernatural dynamic. That's ultimately the second part that we'll discuss next week. But just to give you a glimpse that gets to the motivation. Jesus says, look, I do this because I love you. I do this, and even in the, the interlude, the, that 6 to 11, kind of that section where Peter's starting to argue with Jesus because he's uncomfortable, like, you shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. This is pointing to something deeper. That he realized that Peter didn't know, but just a few hours later, he was going to be arrested, and 24 hours later, he'd be dead on a cross. And he, had, he would have done that for Peter. And he's like, you don't understand yet, but you need to get this, this motivation. The reason we do this is because you've been loved. And people who have been loved have a security that gives them an ability to walk out and love others. They're not consumed trying to get love. They're not consumed by trying to get from people to fix the insecurity on the inside because they already have the security of being loved by God. Down deep. That's what Jesus points to. And when you have this profound sense of love that motivated Jesus and everything he did, and then the realization of how much he loved you that begins at the very core of you are to create this confidence that's holy, that I'm loved. You can find yourself in places being able to love even those who are unlovable, to be able to serve the ones who are distrustful, to be able to do good even with the haters, and like Taylor Swift so beautifully says, shake it off when they hate back. Because you have a confidence that doesn't need anything from them but has a love that can do things for them. And that love that we've been called to was the secret of Rick's life. Rick understood that because of what Jesus had done for him, Rick got to do that for others. That love does, period. We believe that. Love does. Love doesn't need explanations because it's already been defined by what Jesus has done. Love just needs opportunity to demonstrate it. And so that's why we do. And imagine, right, just a few, a few minutes later, Jesus says to his followers, the world will know you are my disciples, you are my followers by the way you love one another. Jesus sets this bold, bold, bold request over them that, hey, the mark of who you will be will be how you love one another. When people are like, oh, they have, I... I know who they are. How? You just, no, I didn't have to talk to them. I see the way they treat one another, and I see how the way they treat others. They're, they're those Christians. And that's what Jesus said about the little Jesuses. 
that the world will know you belong to me by the way you love. And imagine what if we stepped out of this room and stepped into our relationships, into our boardrooms, into our hobbies, into our teams, into the, the pace and rhythm of life, and we came as a force, not trying to understand or manipulate what we could get from people, but came as a force for good that said, we are here for you. We've been loved. We've been served. And so we're here to love and serve. And we can love you longer than you can distrust us. We can serve you longer than you can hate us. And we can take this love that we have and outlast all the darkness that this world will ever throw at us. That we could be a people who live in such a way that causes people to ask, why in the world?